The following audio is from Amaze KC. More information about Amaze KC is available online at www.amazekc.com. Well, good morning. It's good to see you today. My name is Joshua. I'm one of the pastors here. It's a joy to have you with us. If you have your Bibles, take them and open up to the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus, if you don't know where that is, then um, turn to the book that you always stop your yearly reading plan in. It's that book, right? It's that book. Uh, but seriously, if you don't know where that's at, start at the beginning. It's the third book. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus is where we're going to be today. We're in a series called the Pentateuch, which is literally just the first five books of the Bible, and which are, in essence, one, one narrative story, one, one book into five. And we're kind of journeying through those and spending a couple weeks in each one of them, looking at the grandeur and the grace of God, the grandeur of God to establish his people and the grace of God to preserve his people as we go through there. We got a lot to do today as we break this apart, as we look at this. Two weeks in the book of Leviticus seems like a daunting, daunting task. And so let's pray because we have a lot to do and we need the Spirit to do it for us, all right? Jesus, we thank you for being the Savior of our souls. We thank you that you shed your blood. You spilt your blood, you broke your body upon the cross so that we might have life. Today, what we do in our singing and in our confession and in our prayers and in our study of the scriptures as we're going to for the next 40, 45 minutes is all geared towards your fame, your glory, and worship of you for what you've done for us. And so through our time in the scriptures, may you receive praise. May you receive glory. May you be made much of. We pray that the Spirit would minister to our hearts. For this church is your bride. And you know your bride's heart. And you know where she grieves and where she hurts. Where she needs encouraged and where she needs challenged today. And so would you love your bride today? Would you minister to her and care for her and speak to her and nurture her in all the ways that she needs through your scriptures? May you be glorified. May lives be sanctified through the teaching of your word. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So over the last two weeks, or excuse me, last four weeks, we've journeyed through two whole books of the Bible, right, which is a lot in a four-week period of time. And um, by the time we're done with the series, we'll have gone through five books in, I believe, nine weeks is what the series will end up being, where Pastor Ronnie in a few weeks has the daunting task of the entire book of Deuteronomy in one sermon, all right? And so, um, so those of you that come that Sunday, bring a lunch, because we'll be here for a, a while. Uh, but let's just recap briefly where, where we've been so far. We have Genesis and Exodus we've looked at over the last four weeks. In Genesis verses 1 through 3, you've got creation, God creating all things and, and calling them good. And, and he created them for his glory. And within that creation, he makes man. And he gives man magnificent gifts. Meaning he gives man everything. Everything in creation is for man. 
for man's joy, for man's um, enjoyment, for, for man to care for, for him to watch over, all then turning glory and worship back to God. But, but man decides to turn that glory, that worship towards himself. We call this the fall. And man rebels against God and, and sins by taking on the one, taking fruit from the one tree, the, the one place that God told him not to, not to take it from. And so the fall happens in this sin, in this rebellion, this relationship with God is fractured. Before the fall, God literally walked and dwelt amongst man, right? He, he would walk through the garden with man and dwell amongst him and, and live with him. And the fall happens and that relationship with the Lord is, is broken and that presence is fractured. But in God's goodness, he comes seeking after man. And he makes a promise, he makes a, a covenant that one day he will shatter this brokenness and he will restore wholeness to this relationship between him and man through a child who would crush the enemy. So we move from that journey, from that story through Genesis 1 through 3 into Genesis chapter 12 through 50. And in Genesis 12 through 50, you have the story of God coming to Abraham and then Isaac, and then Jacob, and Joseph, making covenant with Abraham, with Abraham's descendants, and all those who would come from him, that the Lord would be their God, that they would be his people, and that he would dwell among them. This is a covenant, a promise that he makes them. And what we see within this, and throughout the narrative of Scripture, and the narrative of history, and the narrative of your life and my life, is that man was really, really bad at keeping that covenant. Ridiculously bad at keeping their end of the covenant. Yet despite this, God was never bad at keeping his end. God never wrestled with faithfulness to the covenant with his people. So he makes covenant to Abraham, says, I'm giving you a son. That son will have sons. They'll have sons, as many as the stars in the sky and the, the sand on the seashore, and they will be my people. I will be their God, and I will dwell among them. Well, Joseph ends up in Egypt through a series of God's sovereignty and his suffering. He ends up in Egypt, and in Egypt rises from slave to the second in command of the most powerful nation in the world. And there in Egypt, Joseph then is used through God's sovereignty when famine strikes to bring life to God's people. For Joseph's brothers and father come to Egypt seeking food for the, for, for the perseverance of their lives. And through Joseph's suffering and God's sovereignty, God has established a way to preserve his people. And so they come into Egypt and they receive food. And in this process, they, they find themselves at home in Egypt. And that worked out well while Joseph was alive and while Pharaoh was alive. But Joseph passed away, Pharaoh passed away. And it says a new king rose up who did not know Joseph or his family or, or their ways. And they began to enslave the people of Israel, God's people. And for 400 years, God's people find themselves in slavery. This did not catch God off guard, but God had promised that it would happen all the way back in Genesis. God then comes to a man by the name of Moses. In a bush, a burning bush that was not burning up, God speaks to Moses through the bush and says, Moses, it's time for you to go back to Egypt for I want to set my people free. And through a series of God's grandeur and plagues, 
and works among the Egyptians, God frees his people, slaughters the Egyptian gods, destroys the Egyptian king, and sets his people on a path to freedom to a mountain called Sinai where God would then meet with them. And in Exodus 19, he meets with them. God appears upon the mountain in all of his grandeur. The people are not allowed to approach the mountain lest they die. If they step foot on it, they will die. There is a separation between God and his people. Though God was leading his people to a place where he would dwell with them. At Sinai, God gives Moses the Ten Commandments and then gives him the law and the the rules and and ways that the Israelites were to live. And while he's doing this, the Israelites begin to lose faith and they begin to doubt and they begin to fear and they decide to make for themselves their own God and they they build a golden calf and they worship and praise and give credit to this calf for freeing them from Egypt. God's wrath is poured God desires to pour his wrath out upon his people, but Moses intercedes on their behalf. And God relinquishes his wrath so that a remnant, a portion of his people remain. And in grace, he saves them, preserves them. Moses goes back up on the mountain and God continues to give Moses laws and rules and ways of life. And in that, at the end of Exodus, the last portion of Exodus, God gives Moses instructions to build a tabernacle. The place where God would dwell amongst his people. And Exodus ends with Moses completing the tabernacle. And then the book of Leviticus begins. Leviticus takes a turn for us Because Leviticus is not primarily narrative. In fact, there's very little narrative within the book. It is a law book. Right? Which I'm guessing most of us are not experts on law in this room. I know most of you and you're not lawyers. Not only is it hard to understand from the idea that it's a law book and we're not normally used to reading law, but it's a culture completely completely strange to us. They're nomadic people who were slaves. They've never had their own government. Now they're free. They are developing their own government. God gives them laws. They live in tents, worship in open air spaces. They make sacrifices and kill goats and and birds for their worship. It's different. We're not doing any of that here today. So how do we understand this book? And what are we to learn from this book? It's into this kind of chaos, if you will, of laws and rules that we find ourselves landing and go, now what am I supposed to take from that? Which is the exact reason why most of us read this and walk away from it and go, I'm not even finishing the book. I'm not even finishing the book. But this book is a treasure waiting for us to unearth. Within this book and these laws, we see God so grand that no one should dare approach him on their own ability. In this book, we see a God so grand that no one should dare approach him in their own ability. And in this book, we see a God so graceful that he came to us and made a way to be with us, giving us a lamb to atone for our sins once and for all. It's within this book that we see the necessity for bloodshed in order to access God. 
I don't know if you noticed the songs we sang today, but they were riddled with blood. Riddled with it. I actually looked around at some of your faces, and maybe you're just tired, but some of you looked very confused, maybe even grossed out. Song after song about the blood of God. The significance of that church, the significance of the blood of God, and the reason we sing about it today, really, the reason we sing about it every week, if you notice, there's not a week that goes by we don't. The reason we sing about it specifically on a day like today where we're studying a book like this is because it's the book of Leviticus that gives for us the foundation of the necessity of shed blood for our atonement and our dwelling with God. We see it here like we see it nowhere else in Scripture. Earlier this week, Michael Gunger, popular contemporary Christian music artist and worship leader, went to Twitter and spoke against this very idea using these words. I would love to hear more artists who sing to God and fewer who include a father murdering a son in that endeavor. If you can't think of anything to sing to God other than gratitude for taking your shame away through bloodshed, then stop singing and look around. Now, I certainly don't mean to minimize the meaning and symbolism of the cross for billions of Christians through the centuries. I simply think blood sacrifice is a very limited and untimely metaphor for what the cross can mean in our culture. Contemporary Christian artists on your Christian radio that you listen to, who's put forth worship albums that you probably have listened to, saying the cross is simply symbolism. Blood is simply a metaphor. And there's more to worship God for than him taking away our shame through shed blood. I agree with him. There is more to worship God for than just that. But if we take that away, we have nothing to worship God for. Is that blood that saves us, blood sacrifice, is not merely a metaphor, but a requirement to be in God's presence. If we lose the shedding of blood and the atonement of sins, then we have lost the gospel. And if we lose the shedding of blood and the atonement of sins as the central and foundational grace for which we worship Jesus, then we have lost the aim of our worship. The shed blood of Jesus is all we have to build our foundation upon. And Leviticus will tell us that over and over and over again. This book is a treasure for us. What I know, what I believe, maybe I'm wrong, maybe you are the church that that flips this around, but I'm guessing that there are many of us in the room who have never read the book of Leviticus, who have no idea. If I were to go, tell me something about the book of Leviticus, All you would have to tell me is blood. And that's because I just told you blood. (laughs) So here's what we have to do. We have two weeks. What we have to do today is to do, in essence, a survey of the entire book. From from chapter 1 to chapter 40. We have to do a survey of everything from beginning to end. We have to unpack it and look at it, understand it. And then next week, what we're going to do is we're going to land on chapter 16. We're going to land on chapter 16. 
And in chapter 16, we're going to look at the Day of Atonement in detail. It is not only the central theme and purpose and portion of this book, but it is central to the entire Pentateuch. Right, to the entire Pentateuch. So next week we'll spend our whole time in chapter 16. But today we want to do a survey. Chapter 1. <laughs> chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 6, verse 7 deals with sacrifices. Deals with sacrifices. And through these sacrifices, it gives us some extremely specific instructions for various types of sacrifices for the people of God. So I just want to give us a brief survey, right? We're, we're not going to go through and read every verse. We don't have time for this. We're going to land in a couple chapters and read extensively. But right now, let's just do a brief survey. In chapter 1, it deals with the burnt offering, right? And the burnt offering was made as atonement for the worshiper's sin. The animal provided a death penalty substitute on behalf of, a pers- of the person due to his or her sin, The animal was killed. The blood was taken and thrown against the side of the altar at the entrance of the tent of meeting by the priest. In this burnt offering, you were to take your animal, you were to fillet the animal, cut it into pieces. The head and fat should be put on the fire and burned. Its entrails and its legs shall be washed with water and then all of it shall be burnt on the altar. If you give a sheep or goat, they must be a male without blemish. And you shall kill it on the north side of the altar, blood thrown against the sides of the altar, and then the blood shall be thrown against the sides of the altar by the priests. If you decide to kill a bird, then their wing, they should be torn open by its wings, but not severed completely. You see the specificity within this? North side, the right person throwing the blood torn open by the wings, not ripped completely open, male without blemish. It's just a sample of the specifics that God gives about the offering. And chapter two tells us about the grain offering. And in the grain offering, it was an offering where where you would bring it as worship for God's divine sovereignty and your provision. And some of the grain that you brought was to be burned up on the altar. And some of the grain that you brought was to be given to the priest so that they had food. You were to bring this grain offering, and this grain offering must be, you must use in this grain offering fine flour with oil and frankincense, unleavened bread broken in pieces, or fresh ears roasted in oil. And some of you are kind of hungry after that one. We'll talk about blood again in a moment. It'll cease your hunger. Chapter 3 deals with the peace offering. For time's sake, we're not going to go into details. Chapter 4 talks about the sin offering. In verse 2, it says, if a priest sins unintentionally, this is what you should do. Verse 13, if the whole nation sins unintentionally, this is what you should do. Verse 22, when a leader sins unintentionally personally, this is what you should do. Verse 27, if if a common person sins unintentionally, this is what you should do. Right, So much detail that it even breaks it apart to if you're a common person and you sin unintentionally, this is what you should do. And if you're a leader and you sin unintentionally, this is what you should do. And if you're a priest and you sin unintentionally, this is what you should do. And if all the people sin unintentionally, this is what you should do. And in every one of those, it gives details about what you should do in that moment for your sin offering, for atonement of your sins. In chapter 5, we get the guilt offering. 
Chapter 5, verses 5 through 6. Look there with me. When he realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses the sin he has committed, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for his sin. Now notice, you can underline, if you underline, it would be a great verse to underline. The significance of this will land at the end of the sermon. When you realize your guilt, you are to bring a compensation for your sin. If you are paying attention to Sam leading us in confession, that should raise a flag Because in our confession, Sam says, we come to you with nothing to bring. But the point of the sacrifices is that when you sin, you must bring compensation for your sin. For your sin. Chapter 6, verse 8 through chapter 8, tell us how the priest can be made holy in order to bring the sins of the people before God. We don't have time to look at that, but but just understand this. The priests had to make a special sacrifice for their own sin, for their own forgiveness to God, before they could offer a sacrifice for your forgiveness. So the priest had to go before the Lord, cleanse himself. We'll talk about this more next week in the Day of Atonement. Cleanse himself, make sacrifice for himself and his family, go back out, re-cleanse themselves, and come back in and make sacrifice for you and your family. Even the priest cannot enter the presence of the Lord without first making compensation. So here we are, eight chapters in, and what do we have so far is this. When you sin intentionally and unintentionally, you must make compensation through sacrifice. This sacrifice must be done by a priest who must first bathe and wash himself in an intense and specific way, clothe himself in a specific garment, and then make sacrifice for himself in an incredibly specific way before then he before then making sacrifice for you in a very specific way. Is anyone else overwhelmed or tired by this already? And you've not even read the whole book. You're just hearing me summarize it for you. I am the cliff notes of this for you today. I encourage you to go read it. Read it this week. In chapter 9 and 10, we get our first narrative of the book, and I want you to look there. <coughs> In chapters 9 and 10, we get our first narrative of the book. <coughs> it says this in chapter 9. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel, and he said to Aaron, Take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. And say to the people of Israel, Take a male goat for a sin offering and a calf and a lamb, both a year old without blemish for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for a peace offering to sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil, for today the Lord will appear to you. And they brought what Moses commanded in front of the tent of meeting. And all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. Verse 6, and if you underline in your Bible again, I would say underline this verse. And Moses said, this is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. You must do this so that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. 
Then Moses said to Aaron, verse 7, draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people and bring the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. And this goes on in detail. It's our first narrative. You say so far, all that's happening is someone's telling someone to do it, but it's a narrative of them doing that. Right? So it's no longer law. This is what you have to do. Tell the people this is law. Now it's going, hey, it dropped us into a narrative. God speaks to them and says, do this today, and they are doing this. So they make sacrifice very specifically the way that God tells them to do. Verse 15. Then he presented the people's offering and took the goat of the sin offering that was for the people and killed it and offered it as a sin offering like the first one. And he presented the burnt offering and offered it according to the rule. And he presented the grain offering and took a handful of it and burned it on the altar besides the burnt offering of the morning. And he killed the ox and the ram and sacrifice of peace offerings for the people. And Aaron's sons handed him the blood and he threw it against the sides of the altar. But the fat pieces of the ox and of the ram and the fat tail and that which covers the entrails and the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver, they put the fat pieces on the breasts and burned the fat pieces on the altar. But the breasts and the right thigh, Aaron waved for a wave offering before the Lord as Moses had commanded. Are are you seeing the details of what they have to do? This isn't just a flippant show up, make an offering and go home kind of thing. Verse 23. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Can can you imagine that moment? where you've been told that if you will make sacrifice in this very specific way, the Lord will accept your sacrifice, will welcome you into your presence, and forgive your sins. And as it's being done, for the first time, you're waiting in anticipation to see if it actually works. Is he going to be faithful to what he told us? Is this truly going to atone for our sins? Will he really welcome this? Did did Aaron do that right? I mean, you know you have some type A personality out there watching the whole thing. Did that really count as sprinkling of blood? I'm not sure. I think you need to, can you do that again? Right, you're waiting and the glory of the Lord appears and fire leaps from his presence and consumes their offering and the people erupt in celebration for the Lord has accepted their sacrifice and their sins have been atoned for. What a day. What a moment. The story turns tragic. Chapter 10. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. The sons of Aaron, immediately following right sacrifice, and God's acceptance of the sacrifice decide to make sacrifice in their own way by their own ability 
and bring it before the Lord. Only this time, the fire of the Lord does not leap from his presence and consume the sacrifice, but consumes them and kills them. Parents, can can you picture yourself shielding your children's eyes? The horror of this moment, this tragic turning of events, from celebration to shock. Look what the Lord says in verse 3. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. God just said, I told you a specific way to do this. I will receive glory, and my glory will come from doing it the way I said, not your own way. Not your own way. You approach me and my glory how I say to approach me and my glory. Not in your own way. Can you imagine the seriousness that this put through the hearts of the people of how they do their sacrifices? In one sense, this is the grandeur of God to consume those who came at him in an unholy, unsanctified way. And in the same way, it is his grace. It is the grace of God that consumed those who came to him in an unholy, unsanctified way before all the people so that all the people would see the seriousness of coming to God in the way that God said to come to him. That's your Leviticus narrative. It's a wonderful book, isn't it? Back to a brief overview of the rest of the book. Chapter 11. It deals with clean and unclean animals that you can and can't eat. Chapter 12 deals with how to become ceremonially clean before God after childbirth. Right? Because that's messy. All the... All the dads in the room said yes. Chapter 13 and 14 deal with laws about how to remain pure if in contact with leprosy. And then how to purify your house if a leper has been in it. Right? Not only if you have leprosy or someone, if a leper comes in your house, what do you have to do to your couch? To purify your couch from the leprosy. Chapter 15 deals with laws about how to be clean after bodily discharge, right? So, so it's laws about, when women, about women during your monthly cycle those who, and those who come in contact with you during your monthly cycle and those who have had intercourse, right? It's, it's laws, rules about how to be clean before God, ceremonially clean, how to enter his presence in those seasons of life, in those moments of of life. Chapter 16 is about the day of atonement, right? The yearly day where God would pardon the sins of the people through sacrifices. And, and we'll look at that in detail next week. Chapter 17 gets specific on where sacrifice can be made and says no one may eat blood. Chapter 18 deals with unlawful sexual relations, and it is a graphic and eye opening. 
I tweeted out at some point, I was preaching through the book of Leviticus, and someone told me, just read chapter 18 and shut the book and say, thus saith the Lord. Right? It will shock most of us to repentance. It is graphic and detailed. It shows us that man has always been depraved. He calls us to sexual purity in it. Chapter 18 deals with unlawful sexual, excuse me, um, chapter 19 through 22 outlines the necessity of holiness among God's people and the way to live holy. Chapters 19 through 22 outlines holiness and the way to live holy. Turn with me to chapter 19 briefly. Chapter 19, verse 2. Underline this verse if you underline. Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. Did anyone see that being the next verse after, You shall be holy, for I am holy? Be holy, honor your mom and dad. Be holy. Love your neighbor as yourself, verses 9 and following. Honoring your parents, loving your neighbor, it's an act of holiness. As he talks about loving your neighbor, he goes through and he says, you must provide for them. Don't steal from them. Don't deceive them or lie to them. Don't oppress others. He goes on and he says, don't curse the deaf because they can't hear you or put a stumbling block before the blind because they can't see it. Don't take advantage of people. He says, don't hate your brother in your heart. If you know Jesus' teachings in Matthew, does that sound familiar? He says, keep God's commands. Don't sacrifice your children. And don't turn a blind eye to those who do. Want more information on that? Listen to Sam's sermon back in January in our um, Gospel and Culture series on the sanctity of life. Don't, don't sacrifice your children and don't turn a blind eye to those who do. And he says sexual sin is to be absent from your life. He goes through this whole series of ways to be holy. You are holy. Or you are to be holy. For I, the Lord, am holy. And for the sake of time, the remainder of this book deals with holiness. For the priest. Festivals to celebrate in honor of God, how to honor the Sabbath, caring for the poor, the blessings of obedience and the curses of disobedience, and even how to take a vow, how to make a vow with somebody. So in review, because that was the fastest, the fastest survey of the book of Leviticus ever, maybe. In review, chapters 1 through 6 talk about all the sacrifices and the specific ways in which those sacrifices should be done in order that God's people could be made holy. Chapters 7 through 8 talk about the priests, how the priests must be made holy before offering sacrifice for the people. Chapters 9 through 10 gives us the narrative of God accepting the sacrifices which were offered exactly how he commanded and God consuming those who approached him in their own way. Chapters 11 through 15 deal with the laws about ceremonial cleanliness or holiness. Chapter 16 deals with the Day of Atonement, where sins of the people are atoned for by the sacrifice. And chapters 17 through 27 deal with the laws and ways of living holy. Of living holy. One commentator explained that the book 
is divided between how to come before God's presence and worship and be accepted and how to remain holy so that you can do so. How to cleanse yourself and come before the Lord in a way that he accepts you and how to remain holy so that you can do so. So here's my question for us. What do we do with this? What do we do with this book? What does it all mean for us? What's the significance of the sacrificial system and the strict guidelines and rules? What's the significance of the priest's holiness and their sanctification? What is the significance of my holiness and my sanctification? I have three things for us. First, the expectation is still holiness. The expectation today for those in this room and for all people is still holiness. That has not changed. There's portions of this book that we look to and we must not, we don't have to apply them to our lives. But holiness is something that must be applied. It must be present in our lives. Some of us are living life relishing in sin with no care in the world. For t- and, and we're taking this, we're, we're thinking this, we're, we're living in sin, we're relishing in our sin because Jesus has died for us. He's bought our sin. He's paid for our sin. He's made us holy. So we just live in our sin. We relish in our sin. And some of us are approaching sin with apathy. We don't care about killing it. It's not that we just desire to keep living in it, but we're being very casual about the extent to which we'll go to kill it in our lives. Just kind of like, well, it is what it is. We're all sinners. We all wrestle with this. So I'm just going to kind of try to do better. Try not to do it anymore. Here's the, here's the problem, and here's why I say holiness is still the expectation. Hebrews 12, 14 says, strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And Hebrews was not written to a, a, a church or a group of people receiving it before Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, but those who have trusted in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And it tells them, you must strive, work for, go to great lengths for holiness, for if you don't have it, you will never see the Lord. And then in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter quotes Leviticus and says, Be holy, for God is holy. A New Testament author, after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, one of his disciples who had walked with him and heard his teachings, quoting Leviticus and telling the church to continue being holy because God is holy. Holiness is still an expectation for us today. And the belief that we can live in sin because grace abounds is a lie that we are building a crumbling foundation upon. You cannot continue to live in sin just because you've trusted Christ to forgive you of said sin. Paul says in Romans 6, 1 through 2, What then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul has a theology that tells him that people who have died to sin through the death of Jesus do not continue to walk in their sin. Pastor Ronnie has said this to you multiple times before. A young generation, which is what makes up most of us in this room, have brought many wonderful things to the church. But an area that a young generation, the generation most of you comprise of, that is very, very weak, is a holiness. 
a desperate striving to live in holiness, to kill our sin, to rid ourselves of our doubt, to trust and hope in Jesus and to walk in holiness. So church, I plead with you today to pursue it. Take holiness as seriously as God did when he gave the law in Leviticus. Take holiness as seriously as God did when he gave the law in Leviticus. Keep his commands, kill your sinful habits, confess, repent, and walk in the light so that you might be holy, so that you might see God. Because you see, holiness is not an end in itself. Which leads me to my second point. The goal of holiness is fellowship and union with God. The goal of holiness, both in a state of being that's been purchased for me and in a state of living through the killing of sin and obedience to God, the goal of holiness is fellowship and union with God. Fellowship and union with God. This is the aim of the law. God gave laws to provide fellowship and union with himself. Holiness is not an end to itself, but the means to the end. You remember that we're looking through the Pentateuch, through the lens of covenant. All right, if you've been with us, you, you remember that, that term. We're looking through the, eye, the lens of covenant. God's made covenant with us. We've made covenant with him. We break covenant. God remains faithful to covenant. Let me just journey you through that just briefly, because here's what I want us to see. God always pursues and initiates relationship with man. In Genesis 3, 9, God calls to Adam in the garden after Adam had sinned. In Exodus 3, 4, God called to Moses from the bush. In Exodus 19, 3, God calls to Moses from Mount Sinai. In Exodus 24, 16, God calls to Moses from within the cloud. In Leviticus 1, 1, God calls to Moses from the tent of meeting. And then in Exodus 25, 8, God says, let them make for me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And in Exodus 29, 45 through 46, he says, I will dwell among the people of Israel. I will be their God. So so hear this. God's promise to us. God's covenant with us. The promise that he continued to make and he continues to make this day is not just that he would be God to his people, but they would be his people, but that he would be a God who dwelt among his people. His promise is not simply he would be a God of his people far off, but that he would be a God of his people close by, near, in their presence. And this raises a great problem. And the problem is this, how in the world does a holy, righteous, sinless, perfect God dwell amongst a broken, shattered, sinful, rebellious people? How? Leviticus 10 tells us it doesn't happen without death. When sinful man came in the presence of holy God, Apart from the way that God designed it to take place, they died. It's a question that the psalmist asks in Psalm 15, 1. O Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle, who may dwell in your holy mountain? I'm perplexed, God. Who can come to you for your holy? (coughs) Who can come before you 
Look with me to Exodus chapter 40. Exodus 40. Turn back to Leviticus chapter 1. It's the chapter just before that. Exodus 40. God has given Moses rules, guidelines, instructions to build a tabernacle. Moses has been building the tabernacle in verse 33 of Exodus 40. At the end of verse 33, it says this. So Moses finished the work. Moses built a tabernacle so that my presence can dwell there and I can be amongst the people. Moses builds the tabernacle, finishes the work. And anyone who knows anything about literature is waiting for this next thing to happen. What's supposed to happen next? Build the temple for I for me to dwell because build the tabernacle for me to dwell in because I have said I will dwell among you. What's supposed to happen next is Moses goes into the tabernacle and is in God's presence. That's what's supposed to happen next, but it's not what happens. Verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses, I desire to dwell amongst the people. Build me a tabernacle that I may dwell with you and you with me. Moses builds it. He finishes it. And you can almost see him beginning to walk in the doors and go, finally, finally, I can dwell in the presence of God. Yet he could not enter because God's glory was there. God's glory was there and he could not enter. Moses, God's guy, the leader of Israel, the one God visited in the bush on the mountain, the one who went up against all of Egypt, the one who led God's people through the wilderness, the one whom God did miracles through. Moses, God's guy, the leader of the people. If Moses can't enter the tabernacle, then who can? Who can? Can you imagine the fear that must have spread through the camp? The worry, the doubt, the confusion. Moses isn't building the tabernacle off by himself while everyone else is playing kickball. It's the day the tabernacle is concluded. People are watching. There's expectation of what's about to happen. And Moses concludes the building of the tabernacle and can't go in it because God's glory won't allow him to. And the people must have wondered, if Moses can't get in, how am I ever supposed to get in? If Moses can't be in the presence of God, how can I be in the presence of God? If Moses isn't good enough, how will I ever be good enough? Then Leviticus chapter 1. And the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, And what we get following is God's way for man to enter his presence. Moses, you can't come in. You're sinful. You're wicked. You have doubts. You're not holy. You're not sanctified. This is my presence. In the garden, I was with man. Man rebelled. That was fractured. I cannot reside with you, Moses. 
but I will make a way. But I will make a way. And God proceeds to give them the law. The book of Leviticus, the sacrificial systems, the rules and regulations, the expectations of holiness, none of it is an end in itself. Rather, it is all for the purpose of allowing sinful, unclean, unholy, rebellious man to dwell in the presence of the Almighty, never sinning, an eternally holy God. Is a means by which we enter his presence. God called the man. God made covenant with man. God dwelt among man. And then God made way for man to dwell among God. Through sanctification by blood and holiness. The story of Aaron's sons being slaughtered reminds us that we can't do this any way we choose. We must do it through God's way. In Leviticus, we see God's grandeur, not in the great miracles or the massive creations that we did in Genesis and Exodus, but we see his grandeur and untouchable, unapproachable holiness. That is his grandeur in Leviticus, an untouchable, unapproachable holiness. And in Leviticus, we see God's grandeur and the great chasm between our sinfulness and his holiness. And in Leviticus, we see God's grandeur in the exhaustive list of rules that people must follow just to be in his presence without being consumed by fire. But in Leviticus, we also see grace. We see God's grace and his faithfulness to his covenant. We see God's grace and his commitment to dwell among his people. We see God's grace and his commitment to make a way for his people to be sanctified and holy so that they may dwell in his presence. In Leviticus, we see the solution to Moses not being able to enter the tabernacle, and that solution is the blood of the lamb. In Leviticus, we see what Michael Gunger missed, that there must be blood for atonement, and the blood of the sacrifice is not a symbol, but a necessity. Which leads us to number three. Jesus is our way to dwell with God. Jesus is our way to dwell with God. We need not, church, bring compensation, for Jesus is our compensation. We need not bring compensation before him, for Jesus is our compensation. A priest need not to cleanse himself before bringing our sacrifice, for the great high priest, Jesus, was pure, spotless, and without sin, and he is our sacrifice. We need not clean ourselves up, wash ourselves off, beat our sins, conquer our addictions, or silence our doubts before worshiping God. None of you had to do any of that before coming in here today. On our way here today, we were praying for you. My wife was praying for you in the van on our way here. And she prayed for those of you who this morning in getting ready to come to church doubted and feared and worried about cleaning yourself up before coming here. Feeling that you must look a way, act a way, feel a way before you could come into the presence of God. Before you could come gather with his people. You must not clean yourselves up. You cannot wash yourselves off. You do not beat your own sins or conquer your own addictions or silence your own fears before worshiping God. If you are a follower of Jesus, Jesus has already cleansed you. He's already washed you. He's already freed you, and he's already made the conquering for you. 
Today, you rest in God's presence, not through your effort, but through his holiness given to you. Through his holiness given to you. Christian, would you do that today? Would you just rest in his holiness that's been given to you? It doesn't contradict striving for holiness. It contradicts why you strive for holiness. You strive for holiness for he is holy and he's given you his holiness through Jesus. For those of us in the room who are not followers of Jesus today, who've never trusted in Jesus, never hoped in Jesus, hear me. The story of Leviticus is a story for you. That there is nothing you need to do to come into the presence of God and be welcomed. Simply believe Jesus has done everything needed. Believe Jesus has done everything needed. Believe that God is holy and you are not. Believe that Jesus died to give you his holiness and and to pay for your unholiness. Repent of your sins and hope and trust in what Jesus has done. And you are welcome in God's presence. Not as a judge, but as a peaceful father. Would you believe today? Would you be saved today? Would you hope and trust in Jesus today? God has provided a way for unholy man to dwell with holy God. That way is Jesus. Every week we take communion here to celebrate that reality. Every week, those who have hoped and trusted in Jesus, those who believe Jesus has died for our sins, has bought our holiness, we come and we, we take communion. We tear off bread, remembering it was Jesus' broken body on the cross that is our sacrifice. We take that bread and we dip it in the, the, the juice, the wine, remembering that it is Jesus' shed blood that makes the way that we no longer have to sacrifice animals ourselves. He was our sacrifice. So today, church, Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, when you come take and you dip the bread in the juice, made that picture of the sacrificial system and the blood spattered all across the altar be upon our minds and our hearts, remembering that it was Jesus's blood that made way for us to dwell in the presence of God. May we worship him for that today. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we ask you not to come take from the table with us. Our invitation is not for bread and juice for you, but for you to take Jesus. So would you trust him today? After the service, I'd love to talk with you if you have any questions about that. Let's pray. Jesus, would you make this reality of Leviticus and your blood being shed for our forgiveness real upon our hearts today? And may your people, your church, those who have trusted in you, may they rest in your finished work, your final sacrifice. And may they strive to live in holiness because of that rest. For those who have not trusted you, may your kindness lead them to repentance today. And may they find joy in your presence through Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.
www.thinkdeeply.com.